This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Good morning, good morning. Professor Ward Scott here in the Manly Warthog Man Cave, the command center here. Uh, for all the hopeful, interesting shows that you're beginning through the Ward Scott Files here in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida in God's country in the Mellon Law Studio, protected by crime prevention uh, 24-7, 365. Get yourself a doorbell camera. Worry less about crime. CPSS.net. Thanks to R&R Construction and our other sponsors. Uh, we have a guest we are getting ready to try to connect with. We see that uh, we saw a Zoom picture of our guest today. Uh, Mr. Mark um, Moyer. So uh, uh, hopefully we'll be connected up with him in a moment. Um, let me take a time out here from our preliminaries uh, here. And Mr. Mark, are you there with us, sir? Okay, production, you might check in with him on cell and see if he's okay. Let me see if we can get ourselves connected here. And I'll talk a little bit about some local things until we get ready and we get our guest on. Um, Apologize. We'll be try calling our guest here to see if we can't get a connection here in just a moment. Apologize for this, but uh, we are always at the mercy of internet world, and uh, we do a lot of production over Zoom with our guests who are coming in from afar, so uh, we'll see if we can't connect up. I want to talk about something here locally, first of all, uh, while we're trying to get our connection together. Um, remarkable thing really has gone on. Uh, to Gainesville City Commission. Uh, I think we're going to get Mark here in a moment. Let's see how we're doing. I want to start this story until we can get our guest on. I'm here, yes. Can you hear me? I can hear you, Mark. All right. Uh, do you need video? Well, it's always nice if people want to see you, but if you don't do video, we'll do audio. <laughs> um, yeah, we can do it. I, I, uh, I need to find a little bit better background. Can you give me a minute to Well, we're on, we're on the air live. So uh, when you get your better background, uh, just talk to me. We'll we'll start talking back with you, okay? Okay. Um, okay. I'll be covering a local story while I'm waiting for you to come back home. Okay. So, uh, locally, I was going to talk while Mark is setting up his background here uh, um, about a, a phenomenal thing that happened here in the city commission of Gainesville. Uh, they voted to go back and resend their ways, the raises by a five to two vote. Of course, the communist commissioner, Psycho, did not, along with a guy named Willits, who says he gave up a full time job expecting the city commission to be full time pay. You know, we've gone a long way from the public servant concept, which is really what the commission is about. And to these people now thinking it's a professional job and a way in a political stardom. So um, that is a really rather remarkable story to happen. Hopefully there's more good things to come, the best of which would be to eliminate the two at-large positions and go back to five commissioners. Uh, while Mark is trying to get a, a visual, and we don't get a visual, we'll go audio, I'll just introduce him. He's the uh, William P. Harris Chair of Military History at Hillsdale College. Now, I'm personally a supporter of Hillsdale, Hillsdale College. Hillsdale College, just to give you a background, is the only um, college I know of, it doesn't take federal funds and uh, therefore is free to think openly uh, and debate uh, pretty much anything they want to do free of any kind of government strings. Um, he's written a book called Triumph Regain, the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Uh, so um, he's been arrested in uh, uh, counterinsurgency and terrorism. 
He studied at the U.S. Marine Corps universities, had fellowships at the Joint Special Operations University in Texas A&M. Um, having been a military school attendant, I know that Texas A&M has a powerful ROTC program there. So he's a frequent media guest. He's appeared on a lot of major radio and television programs. And uh, during the Trump administration, uh, he served the U.S. Agency for International Development as the Director of Office Civilian Military Cooperation. Are you with us, Mark, yet? Uh, yes, I'm there now. Here, let me, uh, there we there go. go. Gotcha. Good. Uh, so, um, I yeah, gave you a glowing introduction. I gave you a glowing introduction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate that. Thanks. It's, uh, it's great to be with you this morning. You go by Mark. You want me to call you Mark or Mark, sir? Yeah, sure. That's fine. <laughs> yeah, well, I was just telling everybody, well, you're getting hooked up there. That I was once upon a time in military school and, and, um, uh, I saw your Texas A&M affiliation and all that. And, um, mm -hmm. And, of course, I'm older than you. I hate to tell you this, but um, the Vietnam War was right in my wheelhouse. I know an awful lot about it from personal experience, life. I wasn't there, but a lot of my friends were. Um, and I've been interested in what you do. I think what you've done is going back with historical perspective and reexamine some of the um, sort of um, narratives that got uh, distributed after the war. One was that we lost. Um, I know the Tet Offensive really doesn't seem to indicate that, but I'm mm -hmm. not going to steal your thunder. I want you to uh, um, introduce yourself a little bit and chat with us for a while. Hopefully you've got quite a little bit of time with us. We're big fans here on Ward Scott Files of Hillsdale College, incidentally. Metro president, he came down here and fundraised uh, locally around here. Nice guy, expert on Truman, uh, Churchill, expert on Churchill. So uh, take it away, Mark. What's, got, what's up, my man? Yes, well, I got into the Vietnam War about 30 years ago, initially, when I started to uh, meet some Vietnam veterans, I, I didn't grow up in a veteran family, but I happened to have first high school teachers and then met people in college. And what they told me didn't match up at all with what I was reading in history books and hearing from the media. And I'd always been interested in history, although it started off more interested in World War II, but, but, uh, there was so much uncharted territory and so many myths out there that I started digging into it. I didn't think I'd be spending, you know, off and on 30 years working on this, but, uh, it said that the magnitude of the task is enormous. And so I wrote first volume of this in 2006. And then I went and did some other things related to Iraq and Afghanistan and the government, Trump administration. And, uh, so got back into this now and just published the second volume and, uh, you know, veterans, highly positive, you know, the academic community, not so much. Which, uh, that's what's great about Hillsdale College is that uh, it's not connected to the ideology that unfortunately pervades uh, most of our other college campuses today. But yeah, I'm a relative newcomer there. I, I joined uh, about a year and a half ago, taught at the, the Washington, D.C. campus. And I'm now at the Michigan campus. Well, we've, I uh, contribute to them, and I've over the years, as I say, kept a good eye on them. They communicate with me quite a bit. And, uh, um, you know, it's uh, interesting that you kind of got this history that you scratch. And um, just to give you some background, my father was uh, 77th Combat Engineers in Leyte, Okinawa, some of the heaviest and bloodiest battles um, that could have ever happened to a human being. And, uh, you know, I was affected by it because I was born uh, without ever knowing him. He'd already gone and I didn't know him until the war was over. So we didn't know each other for about four or five years. But um, mm. those guys came back. Uh, Mark, they didn't have any post-traumatic stress syndrome. They just came back and uh, sadly enough, smoking cigarettes and drinking whiskey and went on about their business and rolled their sleeves up and went to work. So um, one of the strangest things that he ever told my brother and me was that he was not going to support this war because they were not going to try to win it. Now, this was a man who's a lieutenant colonel, heavily decorated, Purple Heart, Bronze Star, a whole bit. And he felt that this was an engagement that the whole of the will of the United States was not going to be in. Mm -hmm. So anything you can tell me to uh, educate me uh, is going to be backed personally for me off of that. Um, although I've got a, a good friend here, former roommate watching, who was a airborne medic in, in uh, Vietnam, 
nickname Doc. I mean, he's got a whole different set of experiences probably. So, um, you know, I suppose you wrote this out of your own initial curiosity about what was so, correct? Yes, and uh, you raised a couple important points there. First, this question of uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. That was, for one thing, overhyped by the media. Uh, it was presented as being some somehow new and peculiar to Vietnam. The truth is that you know, the stress of war goes back to you know ancient times. There's nothing new about it. You may put a different label on. It doesn't really change what it is. And it was hyped, I think, to a considerable degree because you had this anti-war movement that wanted to come up with anything bad about the war they could. So they, they came up with this idea that everybody is mentally damaged and disillusioned. That was one of the first myths that struck me because... If you talk to veterans, you get a different impression. And there was, there was a survey done in 1980, and they asked veterans, Vietnam veterans, about their service. And over 90% of them said they were glad to have served in Vietnam, which is totally contrary to what, to the, the stereotypes you, you see. Now that survey also got to the second point you mentioned was this question of, were we allowed to win? A lot of veterans do, uh, that is their big gripe was that we didn't take the actions necessary. And, and, and that's one of the main themes of the new book is that you have the military, the generals, especially the joint chiefs of staff consistently telling Lyndon Johnson and Robert McNamara that we need to change our strategy because right now it's just, we're, we can kill all this North Vietnamese we want and we were doing a good job of it, but we're allowing them to keep sending in fresh troops indefinitely. And, uh, you know, they're a dictatorship, so they can afford to do that. There's nobody gonna, that's going to stop them. So the couple of things they proposed were, one, they wanted to intensify the bombing of North Vietnam. McNamara had put in this policy of gradual escalation based on abstract theories of conflict management, which uh, turned out to be, disastrous. McNamara claimed that bombing only had symbolic value rather than military value, which the generals knew to be false, and we now know the North Vietnamese to be false. Another big thing, huge opportunity missed, was cutting the Ho Chi Minh Trail in Laos, and the generals keep lobbying for that, and McNamara convinces Johnson not to do it by saying, well, Ho Chi Minh Trail's not all that important, it'd be hard to cut, and we also know not the benefit of hindsight that that was completely false. And then there was also the option of invading North Vietnam itself, uh, which you know, Johnson was afraid the Chinese were going to come in. If we did that, uh, they'd come in in Korea under similar circumstances. But we now know from Chinese sources, Chinese were not going to come back into, uh, they were not going to go and fight us in North Vietnam because they, they knew, and Mao himself, who you think is pretty insensitive to casualties, he actually said, we took so many casualties in Korea that we don't want to fight the Americans again. Well, you know, also you bring back McNamara, but he came over with Kennedy as a production analyst for Ford Motor Company, I remember. And he was yeah. one of Kennedy's brainiac cabinet members. Kennedy was all about hiring intellectual uh, superior people to uh, micro crank anything they wanted to put their minds to. Mm -hmm. And uh, McNamara, unfortunately, I don't know of his military experience, if he had any at all. But he wore the precision type glasses that sort of lent itself and he combed his hair straight back and he looked the part of a kind of a, um, an ultimate pencil pusher, if you will. Um, yeah. Uh, one of those guys whose hair, when you combed it, you could see the comb lines in the hair of what the mm -hmm. hair was. And, um, it wasn't one of my particular favorites. Um, the, the problem that, um, um, my buddies have told me and I had guys who had, Flew medevac helicopters and all the bit, everybody on the ground. Um, some of the most preposterous things I'm just sort of roaming around here was marching our own troops through Agent Orange. Um, that has come back to really haunt the VA. Um, so many guys have turned up diabetic with strange blood disorders because they actually bathed in the streams that were literally orange from the Agent Orange, looked up one of the leaf on the tree. Um, and, you know, what kind of madness would send your own troops through? a defoliated area full of poison that killed everything in it and then marched them through it. There were some boondoggles like that. It stuck with them forever. Um, that seemed to be the public opinion 
that it was being run by people who didn't know what they did, were doing and didn't have a plan and didn't want to win. So um, one of the things we deal with on the show is how many false narratives are there and can we straighten them out? And so I'm assuming some of the stuff I'm presenting for you to uh, play against here is um, something you've investigated and can dispel or confirm or uh, magnify or, or diminish. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, how much of the folly of planning was? I mean, you know, it, it didn't seem to have a plan. And one of the things that complicated it, Mark, I, this is my own personal feeling, was the assassination of Kennedy. I think Kennedy got, you know, we should never have been helping the French to start with. That's what it was, the French Vien Bien Phu and all that with the colony. So we got in there, you know, Kennedy was all about the European connection, so he got in there. Um, the popular notion was he had this wife who spoke French and all this. So I believe, and I can't prove this, that had he not been killed, he would not have gone the route Johnson went. Johnson, when he took over, raised his hand on that Air Force plane, had a look of befuddlement on his face about everything he was supposed to do henceforth. And this was one of we think. Dispel me or confirm me or <laughs> straighten me out, sir. <laughs> yes, well, so 1963 is a pivotal year. In the first volume, uh, Prime Forsaken, I, I go into great detail on the, the most important event as far as Vietnam concern, is concerned is a coup on November 1st of 1963, which leads to the assassination of the South Vietnamese president, Ngo Dinh Diem. And this is a hugely controversial uh, uh, event at the time. And one, this is one, there's certain certainly a false narrative and what you've got to remember is that at the time you have the american press led by neil sheehan and david halberstam are actively lobbying for the overthrow of the south vietnamese president now those two end up going along and also stanley carnot the, who was also there they will go on to write the history of this that most people accept but they do it in a way to absolve themselves because at the time what they were saying is if we only change this government things are going to go great in south vietnam and it turns out when he's overthrown if the uh there's a series of subsequent uh, coups there's purges and south vietnam goes into a downward spiral and so what they try to do in their in their books is to justify that and by claiming that the situation was very different in 63 than it actually was that somehow the war had already gone to hell in a handbasket, but that actually, uh, it didn't go to hell in a handbasket till after the assassination. And then Kennedy himself, right after it, is despondent because he, he was not really in favor of this coup, but he had sent Henry Cabot Lodge to be ambassador and Lodge goes and does it and pushes this coup anyway. And Kennedy doesn't stop him because Lodge is a political rival. So. Now, then, yeah, there's the question of did Kennedy, would he have gotten out? Well, we do know under when Kennedy gets into the White House, there's less than a thousand Americans in uh, South Vietnam, a thousand American military personnel. He keeps adding them. There's up to about 16,000 by the time he's dead. Now, he's hoping not to send American combat troops. There's, there's been some speculation that he was planning to get out, but that's also a false narrative because what you have is you had people shortly before his death talking about take, reducing the American troop strength, but that was because things were actually going pretty well. So had, had Kennedy confronted the situation Johnson faced in 1965, I doubt he would have been willing to pull out because there's, uh, and this is another crucial aspect of the war that doesn't get covered, is that the you know the fundamental rationale for the United States was the so-called domino theory that if South Vietnam falls, then the other countries in the region are going to fall into communism. And another false narrative tells us: well, South Vietnam falls finally ten years later, nineteen seventy-five. Most of the dominoes don't fall, and they might happen to mention: well, yeah, Laos and Cambodia do fall. And of course, the fall of Cambodia leads to the death of about two million people to the Khmer Rouge. So that's not a minor trifle. Uh, but it is true that these other dominoes don't fall. But this is then used to say, well, the domino theory is false. And so what I've done is show that 
Vietnam, at the time, in the time we go in in 65, the conditions are vastly different than they are in 75. And Vietnam actually helps us save most of the rest of the region from communism. And in the new book, I go into detail about Indonesia because there's this big confrontation there at the end of 65. And anti-communist prevail, which I argue is because of what the United States does in Vietnam. Well, what's your opinion about whether or not, quote unquote, we won the war? Uh, and by the way, I'm not even sure it was a war. Um, it, it, it's called a war, but, you know, a war is where you you win. I mean, you, you know, I'm thinking back to my father's experience. We were prepared. He was on the troop ship, ready to go. On a, if if they had to, an amphibious landing into Japan, which he said they would have been clobbered in. He was so grateful, personally, that Truman dropped the atomic bomb because he said we would never have penetrated Japanese homeland. And that was all it was going to bring them down, was to actually bring the war to their homeland. So that was a war, and it was going to be fought by golly come hell or high water to the end. Was this a war? It was, as McNamara liked to call it, a limited war. We made it a limited war. And I think strategically, we actually do achieve our main objective, which is to prevent the spread of communism throughout East Asia. But it's tactically... It's a defeat because we lose our key ally. We also you know, suffer a great loss of prestige. And the way we went out of Vietnam was, uh, I think, you know, uh, dishonorable. We, you know, President Nixon had promised the South Vietnamese after the 1972 Easter Offensive that we would come to their assistance if, uh, if the North Vietnamese tried another big offensive. But then with Watergate uh, and Congress turning against him, you know, he's thrown out and then Ford uh, is unable to intervene. And you know, so this does lead to, uh, you know, loss of prestige, a tragic, you know, many veterans are distraught by the fact that we let our allies fall like this. Lots of them, get, lots of our allies get, uh, killed or imprisoned in re-education camps. And for the nation, it's, you know, has an enduring negative legacy that you know, it really split the country apart, especially on the issue of uh, our national security. And you can see that ever since where you have, you know, the Democrats basically opposed most military interventions in the future, claiming they'd be another Vietnam. That's interesting. We now have the Democrats who are the ones who are the biggest fans of what's going on in Ukraine. But I, you know, I attribute that to the fact that the Democrats since that time concluded that we should not fight wars in our national interest, which is how we've done in the past. Instead, we should fight wars that are in the international interest. And you can see that going back to Somalia, which they supported. They supported uh, Kosovo in 1999, Libya in 2014, and Ukraine today. Because Ukraine, I think it's hard to make a case that this is in our national interest, but, but they see this as part of an international crusade. So... If I heard you correctly, it is can, a soft interpretation would be that, yes, we did win and that we prevented the domino theory from actually happening. Um, you know, we have a guest that shows up uh, uh, on our show from each Wednesday, and it's our former representative, Ted Yoho, from this area, who uh, goes to Vietnam. He was on the Foreign Affairs Committee, all these uh, important committees, and he just got back from Vietnam about three months ago. And he says the whole place is loves America. It's full of capitalism. It is a communist country, but man, do they love America. And they love capitalism. Uh, have you taken that into account in your in your uh, studies here? <laughs> yeah, well, it depends, too, on where where you are in the South, where the Americans were. There is uh, you know, a great deal of um, residual affection. I mean, in the North, they do uh, they do seem to for the most part, seem to have moved on. Of course, it's easier when you're the ones who prevailed in the end. Um, and there's, there's an argument people make that, uh, well, you know, Vietnam would have been capitalist anyway, so why we need to bother? But uh, the truth is, I think that, you know, had we 
had we bailed out, China would have dominated that whole region. And um, you also wouldn't have seen one of the other things that happened to Vietnam. This actually drives China and North Vietnam apart because they're close allies in 1965. By 1968, uh, they're at loggerheads. Mao um, uh, pulls the he has some troops in South. He pulls them out. They end up fighting a war in 1979. But I don't think any of that happens if you don't have the Vietnam War. And I also caution against uh, there, there's a another myth that Vietnam and China are historically mortal enemies and that we didn't understand this and going in. But that's also not true. If you look in the last thousand years before the Vietnam War, there's only three times where the Chinese and the North Vietnamese actually fight. And Vietnam is actually a, a vassal state of China. And when the French come in in the 19th century, China you know, runs to the defense of Vietnam. So now there is some resentment, but I might liken it a little bit to, say, the U.S. and uh, Canada or the U.S. and Mexico. And Canadians and Mexicans may not love the United States, but they also know better than to uh, to really cross us. And so, you know, people think that we can use Vietnam as an ally against China. I don't I'm skeptical of that. Um, you know, they're much closer to China and China has economic tentacles in there as it does in a lot of other places. And the other thing I'd point out too is you know, uh, Vietnam and, and Korea, the, the two wars are very similar. And if you look at the issues, there's really not much difference in terms of, uh, you know, was this a just war or not? Because in both cases, you have communists coming from the north into the south. You have American ally that is autocratic and there's some corruption. They're not super effective, but Look what happens in Korea. We stay there. We we stand by our ally. And now South Korea is one of the most prosperous countries in the world. One uh, very democratic country. North Korea is the complete opposite. Total uh, train wreck of a country. And you know Vietnam today, while they are capitalist, they are much they they are far behind where South Korea is. And I think if you asked any any person in the southern part of Vietnam, would you rather look more like? South Korea than than Vietnam, I think they they would say yes. Talking with Mark Moyer, who is um, a wonderful resource for you today on our class. Since I'm a professor, I always run this like a class, Mark, and all the students are watching and listening. And I'm checking the chat line out. A couple of questions I'll have. Um, he is a frequent media guest uh, on uh, a lot of different uh, media platforms. He's also um, Harris uh, William P. Harris, Chair in Military History at Hillsdale. Hellsdale being my favorite college and I contribute to personally. Um, we'll take a bottom of the hour break, Mark, just for the weather and a few tidy things here that we do for our sponsors. And when I come back, would you please address this whole phenomenon of public opinion act about the war and what you studied and what you learned about that? Um, that was a really, um, you know, all this you're talking about, I lived, you know, this is my kind of generation. And also as a little kid, I remember all about North Korea and, and, and South Korea and MacArthur and Truman. And uh, I can maybe personally talk a little bit about that. Although I was very young, I was very engrossed because my father was a heavy combat veteran, you know, all that. So stay tuned, y'all. We're going to just uh, uh, address the weather and address our sponsors a little bit. Be back with Mark in a moment. Uh, and any questions you want to feed us along, I'll take a look in the chat line. Stay tuned on the Word Scott Files. Be right back. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are 
Lewis Oil Company. Shoot GTR, on-the-spot dry cleaners, R&R construction, and style cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Wardscott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. All right, welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Now we're going to do Ward's weather report. And Ward's weather report is brought to you by Lewis Oil. Chevron Stations, great supporter of ours. And we were just talking with Mark, who's in Michigan, about the weather while we're on the break. Of course, they're getting a lot of snow there. It's pleasant here. I'm, I suppose Mark got a little jealous here. It's about 70 degrees, but it's going to go up to 85. Uh, we have got fantastic weather here. We've got grass growing out in the pasture. We've got the cow's heads on the ground. That always indicates something. I'm not trusting nature, though. You know, climate change can get you. I think we may still get a frost, and that's going to be bad, but that's a way out for us. But Chicago is bracing for travel-disrupting snow, and we've got live tornadic thunderstorms coming across the mid part of the country. We've got snow over the roofs of houses in California. And i got to say, I'm glad to see it because that will fill up those reservoirs with water that the people have foolishly opened up to let the salamander out to Pacific, and, and, and a farmers been suffering a drought. So... Thank goodness for that snow. You know, the old sailor adage, there never was an ill wind that didn't blow somebody a good. So we've got that heavy snow out there in the in, in, uh, western part, but that's going to help them when it melts. Now, we don't like the tornadoes, of course. Those are very destructive. And we're going to get some more snow here as it comes across the Midwest and the Northeast. So um, it's not over. It's a turbulent time of the year. The spring is. California actually has a state of emergency, and they're having to drop uh, rations in by air because they can't get in anywhere like this uh, by by any kind of road. So if you're a skier, if you can get there, um, you got it going on now. I skied for 30 years. I miss it a lot. Um, and uh, I have been snowed in at these resorts on these kind of storms in the past. We're talking with Mark Moyer, who is the William P. Harris Chair in Military History at Hillsdale College, my favorite college. And he's the author of the new book, Triumph Regained the Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968. Now, Triumph Regained Regained is an interesting title because it suggests there's more positive than negative that came out of this. The popular narrative has always been the opposite. Uh, It's been more negative than positive. We didn't win. We sacrificed the lives of a lot of people needlessly. If they survived, they came home sick, uh, 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 mentally or physically, or maybe both. And, of course, one of the things I want to talk with about Mark now is how this is permanent. I think I'm going to anyway hypothesis for discussion permanently affected uh, American public opinion about uh, what we do with our military equipment, if you will. We did away with the draft. That was the biggest change I think has happened in the country. Uh, that draft was onerous. Uh, there were all sorts of things that happened that. People hollered were unfair. The poor went to it. The rich got out of it. It even has haunted Trump through his presidency. Um, and it's true. We did do away with the draft. Another thing that happened under Kennedy was ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. That has completely flipped on its ear now. It's what can the country do for you without you having to do anything for the country. So 
uh, Mark has studied this, and uh, he's uh, on the uh, on the docket now. What do you have to say about my little hypothesis, Mark? <clears throat> yeah, those are great issues. The issue of public opinion is pervasive throughout Vietnam. Now, Lyndon Johnson, when he sends American troops into Vietnam in 1965, he is he's very much worried about public opinion, and he actually predicts correctly that his own party, the Democratic Party, is going to lose faith before uh, the Republicans do. Uh, now, when, when troops first go in, the American people generally supportive, as they typically are, and in, in uh, supporting military cause. But you soon have dissension within the Johnson administration because Johnson refuses to go explain the war to the American people on a consistent basis. And his own people are telling him, you have to go out like uh, Franklin Roosevelt did in World War II with his fireside chats and explain to the American people what we're doing and why it's so important. And he refuses to do this. And he will later explain that he does this because he is trying to become a great domestic president. He's got uh, the, the great society, which he thinks is going to end poverty, and he's got civil rights. And so he wants to he wants that to be his legacy, and he doesn't want to be known as a war president. And he, and he will later also regret that and admit that this, that, that was probably a mistake because when American people aren't told what, what they're fighting for, they, it's hard for them to, to get behind the cause. And so that's part of the problem. He also was dishonest on a number of occasions about, uh, early on, especially around the Tonkin Gulf incident, and people will get upset with him about that. Uh, one of the interesting things that I found is that even at the end of Johnson's presidency, the public is actually still, the majority's behind the war, even though Johnson hasn't done a good job of selling it because they recognize that there is uh, something here bigger than the president and that the country has strong interest in making sure we succeed and that communism is a real threat. Now, in the Nixon administration, uh, Nixon will start to pull the troops out. Uh, I think he also doesn't do the greatest job in explaining the war, and you start to see uh, people, you know, as American troops are leaving, um, you know, people don't want to be the the last soldier to get killed in Vietnam. We, but we do do a good job of turning things over to the South Vietnamese. They fight off this big North Vietnamese offensive in 1972. Uh, the, another thing that's really interesting about public opinion is that uh, College campuses are pretty supportive of the war at the beginning. And this is one of the fascinating things that hasn't really been told before. But the war doesn't turn, people don't turn against war on college until the middle of 1967. So what's going on in the middle of 1967? The war is not actually changing at that point in time. What changes is the draft. They, they get rid of exemptions for uh, graduate school. So undergraduates who thought they could stay out by just going to graduate school now uh, face the prospect of, of getting drafted after college. And so this is what causes this massive upsurge in anti-war sentiment on campus, although it's not every campus. Uh, it tends to be more the elite campuses in the Northeast and Northwest. But this introduces, I think, a, a level of self-interest and really undercuts the notion that this was somehow protesting against an unjust war. They said Korea wasn't really any more of a just war than Vietnam, but you don't have the same type of opposition. Uh, but these same people then who are against the war will go on to write a lot of the history of the war. They become professors. You know, very few Vietnam veterans will become professors. So you have these anti-war folks, and they're trying to come up with a reason of why I avoided the draft and the, the best argument they have that they can come up with is, well, this was a bad war. Therefore, it's really not a big deal that I avoided the draft while these other people were uh, going. And, and, um, and look how, look how much Vietnam damaged the people who did go, which I said is also a false narrative.
Well, there were a couple of big super guys that are made a big splash about it. One was Cassius Clay, who, uh, you know, was quite admired at the time and still is, of course, and was. It became the Muhammad Ali and his famous line is, I don't have anything against those little brown people. Um, kind of played the race card in the whole deal. And uh, that resonated throughout the young people. Um, the draft certainly uh, changed the conversations quite a bit. Um, you made me go down memory lane personally. The first time I ever heard of the Vietnam War um, was in 1961 when I came to the university. And my roommate had come back to school and he was a navigator on the, the B-52s or something, one of the big planes, one of the big bomber planes. He'd come back to complete his college degree in chemistry. Uh, he was still in the Air Force, and they'd given him a, a stipend to come back, and, and, and uh, he was a captain. I remember he came back to our dorm room one day all excited, and he said, look here, look here, he says, I'm going to get my new orders. I'm going to Vietnam. I said, Vietnam? Where the hell is Vietnam? And he says, well, it's the only war we got, man. And if I go, I'm going to make rank. And, uh, boy, he was clicking his heels about it. He loved it. I mean, uh, they were going to send the big bombers, and he was going to be on the big bombers, and they were headed to Vietnam. Uh, and uh, it's the last I've heard of him. He said, you can always get in touch with me. I doubt he's still, you know, around. But uh, he was a great guy. He was older than I was. And, of course, when you have an older guy for a roommate, you kind of use those people as, uh, as your uh, mentors and all. And uh, he educated me. That was the first mark I ever heard. And it wasn't a war. It was called an engagement or a, a some dang thing called it. And it was a clandestine a ramp up of the military. I remember that. He said, mm -hmm. these top secret orders. He said, uh, you know, nobody knows we're going in. So I'm, you, you mentioned the time frames here and I'm clicking them off. I think 1961 in the fall was the first time I ever heard of Vietnam. <laughs> yeah. The, uh, and you did have Truman, you know, in Korea, he also called, talked about it being a police act rather than a war, which I think was also a mistake. Uh, you know, if you look back to World War II, uh, I mean, Pearl Harbor obviously contributes to the, the support for the war, but, uh, you know, you have Americans, you know, most American young men, at least in certain parts of the country, were you know, desperate to um, get into the military. Um, now you do have, uh, you know, not everybody in in World War II was was rushing for the military. And prior to Pearl Harbor, you do have uh, a lot of people trying to, you know, thinking this it's not a huge deal. But once we're in World War II, you know, almost everybody's behind it. And as I said Vietnam Johnson really undercuts that by not making the case that this is, you know, we're a nation at war and. You know, the other thing to think about, too, I think what plays into this is that in the 67 period when the campuses are turning into the war, this is also when the baby boomers are taking the place of the so-called silent generation in the student body. And they are, you know, I think justly deserve the title of the me generation. And they were self-absorbed and a lot of them you know, didn't think you know they needed to sacrifice for the country. Now, there are also a lot of the baby boomers who do go to Vietnam and serve honorably. But you have a real split between within the boomers among those who go to Vietnam and those who don't. And that split, you know, stays with us. And the boomers who don't go, they become the, the newsroom editors and history professors and uh, politicians of, of um, that generation, which can helps account for why we've been fed so many uh, false stories about Vietnam. You know, I remember now, too, that our assistant professor in one of the classes I had at the university, and this was in 1963, because I know exactly where I was when Kennedy was assassinated. I was in this class. But our assistant professor had been a Marine in Korea, and he had been with Chesty Puller in that crowd when they crossed the Yalu River. And um, he said the most embarrassing thing for him ever in his life was when they had to turn and run back down the North Korean peninsula to escape the Chinese hordes after uh, Truman said, I told you not to do that. I'm firing you. And he personally, I remember sitting talking with him. He's a fascinating guy. I mean, you know, he was somebody that we, you know, he'd been a, a, a great high school uh, football player. He'd done a Marine thing the whole bit. And I'd come back and get in the 
Uh, he was a professor at graduate school. And um, he, had, he was a battery pack oper operator. And he said he took that battery pack off. He couldn't run fast enough and threw it over the hill. And he said that was personally the last time he was ever going to follow the government in the war. Those kind of conversations were taking place on the campus, Mark, from guys like that who come back from Korea and, and who were just absolutely dismayed. I mean, MacArthur came in around the 38th parallel and drove them back up. And then that was not to be done. And look what we've got. I'm really interested in what you have, your long term impact of the Vietnam War has been on our national security. Um, it's got to have, and I even would predate it back to Korea. Um, but maybe you don't have that encapsulated in your work there. But um, it's definitely changed. It's definitely changed. Yeah, it created in the you know, American left this great suspicion of American military power and its use in promoting the national interest. And it also, you know, as part of that, you see Vietnam and the way it's maligned, it causes really the, the American left to lose confidence in the United States as a whole. And it's no longer, you don't have that same patriotic spirit and, and you, you know, you start to see people talking about you know, the founding fathers are racist, which, you know, this is now a thing we're continuing to hear today that this is, you know, this is just a racist country. We're, we're no good as a country. We should feel, you know, we should be constantly apologizing to everybody. And, uh, and that's one of the, and, and you also see that on college campuses, especially today. And, and the, the left has been very systematic in sort of inculcating that view in the faculty. And, you know, in the boomers who, the anti-war boomers, they've started to retire from academia. They've been able to find people of like mind to put in to uh, these academic positions so that most college students today are getting only one side of the story. I think I, uh, I, I, I experienced a lot of that, you know, um, and one of our Vietnam vets is on the chat line saying uh, he understood the term was police action is uh, what was often used to describe Vietnam. Um, you know, you mentioned academia, and we know at Hillsdale is not your typical academic campus. Um, how is the conventional, if you will, with quotes around that, uh, academia world received your uh, investigations, if you will, into the narratives? Well, a lot of them are not happy because it's, most of them are invested in these conventional views about Vietnam as this unjust war that never should have been there, that we were driven by a hysterical anti-communism that wasn't, didn't have basis in fact. And so when the first book came out, Triumph Forsaken in 2006, some of them you know, attacked book and me and we ended up uh, putting together, I was approached by, by someone about doing a, a book about sort of debating the book. So that book's called Triumph Revisited and it's the collection of people critiquing, well, some are in favor of the book, some are not. And then I get to respond, which I appreciate because I put tremendous amount of work into that book. I spent about seven years on that book. This one I've been working on and off for, you know, 16 years. And because um, I knew it, that this was going to come under tax. So I really, uh, you know, there's a huge number of footnotes and very careful and all that. So, um, you know, people who read that, I think, will see that that the book has stood up to uh, criticism. Of course, anytime you tell a bunch of people that they're totally wrong about something that they've spent decades saying, you're going to encounter resistance. Well, you'll know you arrived when you're banned from the campuses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when you start getting banned, you'll be you're, you've arrived. So. Uh, uh, that's ultimately what's going on in many cases. You know, if you don't have the right, you don't sing the right song, well, you don't get to sing. So um, mm -hmm. this is, um, I, you know, I guess it's, um, of course, we can't go back and undo what's been done. But what would, it be, what would be the major lessons? If you were in a position to advise, well, I know you're not going to be in a position to advise Uncle Joe, but um, there are many people who feel that we should be isolationists. Uh, we had this discussion 
uh, yesterday, I had a former State Department official on the air who uh, was in charge of nuclear uh, nonproliferation for Condoleezza Rice. And um, he took the position that we cannot be isolationists. We cannot, you know, some of what Trump advocated, make America great, you do want. But, you know, you just, unfortunately, you just can't, it's not a simplistic situation. You don't want to be global. You don't want to have a country without borders. So um, have you got any thought about what the uh, advice you might give uh, uh, about how to conduct foreign policy based upon your studies? Yeah, well, I think, uh, I do think the Republican Party has been, uh, I think, you know, there, there's at the one extreme, there's the isolationists who want to stay out of everything. And then on the other extreme is the neoconservatives who want to get involved in everything. And uh, they've both of those groups have been very loud. I think uh, the the reality needs to be somewhere in between. Um, you know, we can't go everywhere and be everything. Um, but at the same time, we can't just, you know, stay out because the world, whether we like it or not, uh, we are heavily influenced by what goes on, especially, most importantly, with what China is doing. And we can't just, I think, ignore what China is doing. They are, you know, they've been stealing our intellectual property. They are, their trade practices are, you know, have been devastating to our own economy in many respects, which, you know, President Trump did start to take some measures in that respect. Um, we also have to think about, you know, other problems, I think, Illegal immigration is is one of our biggest problems, and uh, uh, there are things you can do. And you know, the Trump administration was active in trying to limit the flow of all these people and kept them in Mexico. Whereas we've seen now the current administration just letting people flood across with these promises that someday they are going to show up in court a few years from now. Which I'm highly skeptical that most of those people are going to show up in court, but um, you know, that has social consequences. You know, they're imposing burdens on the, uh, social services. Uh, some of them are committing crimes. We now have, you know, the drugs that are coming across are killing, you know, huge, you know, huge numbers of Americans dying from those problems. So, uh, I do think certainly foreign policy, we need to be, remain active in terms of, uh, protecting our national interests. Again, that needs to be our overarching concern. Um, the other thing I would say, too, is that we need to maintain a strong defense because if you look at historically, and, and if you think historically as I do, uh, most of the time when the U.S. gets into war, it's when we are actually not well prepared and countries perceive us as being weak. And so if we want to try to stay out of wars, I think, and, and this George Washington himself said that at the founding, that the best way to, um, to avoid wars to be prepared for it. Well, I know at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, um, you know, strength is, a uh, peace is our profession, uh, where the SAC B-52s were. Some people had to have that explained to them. What do you mean peace is our profession if you've got the SAC B-52s stay, uh, uh, here? Well, that's how we keep the peace. <laughs> mm -hmm. You mess with us, you'll you'll greatly regret it, and uh, it will hurt you. Well, you know, I used to be a football coach. We coached that all the time. Uh, you may beat us, but you'll wish you never did it because uh, we're going to pound on you physically until uh, you leave here uh, battered and bruised, even though you may have a victory. And uh, we really just as Mark give you a little history uh, when Gatorade came along, we really were able to do that because. The Gatorade was tested on our high school football team by Dr. K, and we had to mix it in the vats. It tasted terrible. It tasted like drinking the periodic chart. <laughs> and, mm -hmm. and we told him this stuff. Well, uh, the famous quote is this stuff tastes like uh, urine, but we had a different word for it. Mm -hmm. And so his wife is the one who put the lemonade in it and made it taste like it does. And um, we were really able to uh, take that advantage, and we did really mean it now. Uh, we lasted longer in the fourth quarter than these other guys, and most of the time we won. Um, in terms of military equipment and uh, movies and things that have come out of it, I suppose uh, one of the favorite ones of many of my age group is Apocalypse Now, based upon Art of Darkness, of course, and the paradox that uh, uh, is finally disclosed when 
a Marlon Brando says, listen, you send me guys that are going to fight to cut off the arms of inoculated children, then we'll win. Um, I don't know if that's so, but it certainly was uh, dramatic. And and um, I don't know if you've seen that film, but uh, if you haven't, you ought to. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. uh, it's quite a Yes, classic. I've seen it a few times. I watched it again recently with my sons who were interested in it. And uh, it is, uh, I think it's pretty inaccurate depiction. You, know, you have you know, the famous helicopter scene where they're just flying into villages and shooting people up. And, you know, that's not really how it happened. You know, there were a lot of precautions. In fact, a lot of veterans complained there were too many restrictions on what we could fire on. But um, the, uh, and, you know, the, you know, ha- yeah, ha- had there been uh, American, you know, fanatics running around um, willing to do the most savage things, you know, in the short term, maybe that would have helped. You know, we as a country, you know, avoid uh, that sort of thing. And I think, you know, rightly so. But I think we had the, uh, you know, as I argue in the book, American troops fight extremely well and talk a lot about how the North Vietnamese acknowledge that, that they get just, they lose every battle in North Vietnamese. Now, when we try to turn things over to the South Vietnamese, that actually makes sense Um and they do generally a pretty good job, the South Vietnamese, but we you know, pull out the supplies uh, from them, the air support at the end, and that that is their undoing. So ultimately, I think it's really the, the biggest failure is that the American people and government lose their will to to keep supporting these allies who, you know, at the beginning of the war, the South Vietnamese are not fighting well, but by the end, they're actually pretty good, and they could have hung on had we had we not abandoned them. You know, I was just going to ask you how you wanted to conclude. We're down to a couple of minutes, and that sounds like a pretty good conclusion. And it also sounds as if it speaks quite um, quite effectively to where we are today, leaving everything on the on the ground out there in Afghanistan has irked a lot of people. Um, you know, I'm a I'm a go to the range quite a bit. We have a sponsorship here from our range, a shooting range. Uh, I know what ammunition costs. Uh, when you go, lo- when you go live- leaving all that stuff on uh, and just pulling out, that that doesn't make any sense whatsoever. And I think the American people are very frustrated about that. Now we hear these big dollars of five hundred billion uh, over to Ukraine, uh, um, and still people here. I don't think they really know what that's going for. Um, it's it's um, a strange situation. So um, you know, I'm sure we'll. You'll have a lot to write. Let's put it this way. You'll have a lot of right to write about as you go forward because um, the ambivalence, I guess, if I sum up the conversation we've had, the ambivalence is what undid us. Uh, equivocation will undo us is out of Hamlet. Uh, and equivocation did undo us, I think. What's your remarks on that, sir? And I'll conclude with your thoughts. Yes, I think President Biden has has been poor as Lyndon Johnson had been in terms of explaining to the American people why we need to be sending all this aid over there. Uh, and as I said earlier, that helps explain the pres- lack of presidential leadership helps explain so much of the misconception of the, it's also the, you know, biased uh, baby boomers, journalists, um, professors and so forth. But and I'd like to say at the end that, uh, you know, I really wrote this for veterans so they could really get a better view of what they went through. And, and the most gratifying thing to me has been since this book came out is that, uh, you know, I've had a lot of veterans say, you know, I'm glad somebody finally can describe the war as I remember it. And without the biases and, and the misconceptions that we've seen from so many other people. So, I would encourage any any Vietnam veterans uh, to read this, and I think it'll make make them recognize that uh, you know the war was not as it's often been portrayed, and that in fact veterans did do a great job, and there actually was a cause that was worth fighting for. The title of the book is "Triumph Regained: The Vietnam War, 1965 to 1968" by Mark Moyer. Uh, he is currently the military historian at Hillsdale College, and um, Check him out, and uh, I've got a couple of vets here already asking about that title, even though we've mentioned it several times, and uh, we've got it out there now in the conversation. And 
Um, really appreciate you stopping by at Ward Scott Files and chatting with us for a while, Mark. Uh, and um, look forward to talking to you. And again, if you need to uh, find a place to uh, uh, share your ideas, we're certainly here and available. So uh, I wish you well. I want you to uh, um, um, keep your generator handy, man, in case the snow gets you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, thanks, Ward. And uh, thanks for all the, the great work you do. Thank you, sir. And we'll be seeing you guys on Monday. Awards God Files is uh, now going to take a weekend off. And uh, hopefully you have a great uh, day. Warthog Command Center out.